Okay, folks, so here's the show. Heroes and howlers, and the rest is history. My name's Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson... Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thank you, Maggie. Okay, it's about those weird bits of history, the bizarre twists of fate. The cock-ups actually made the (laughs) stuff-ups that have made the world what it is today. Hi, folks. This is what we like to call... Extra helpings. Extra helpings, that's right. And we're sort of looking at the sort of questions, obviously, from the folks at home, because we've got a lot of new ideas and and info on Twitter and Facebook, which is very, very kind. But also, obviously, I I think we all felt that... The first season was a bit of a bit of a whirlwind, wasn't it? Really? Well, quite frankly, we, we had to brush over some of the more stranger stories. That's right. So this is our chance to actually retouch on them and plug a few on. gaps, if you like. Yeah, you know, plug a few gaps with an extra helping. <laughs> so um, yeah, like we said, uh, folks, please follow us on social media. We, we put stuff out like maps and um, oh, we put info. out maps. Paul puts out maps, <laughs> and also two great cartoons and yeah, and, that kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, keep in touch that way and give us your feedback. But today we want to concentrate on the first five episodes from season one. And of course, you know, that first episode, first ever episode, remember that, Mikey? Seems so long yeah, ago. I know. The Fourth Crusade. And, and um, <laughs> everyone said, if we're talking about the Fourth Crusade episode, we've got to start with <laughs> that lovely quote from you, Mikey, about Richard Lionheart being a bedwetter. <laughs> bedwetter and a spinner. The and most, a mummy's boy. In fact, I always say that of all the dicks that ran England, <laughs> he was the worst dick, and that includes the third. All right, but one thing we did want to say, and I think this is quite important, isn't it, Mikey? Yeah. We say call him a mummy's boy, and the mummy in question, it was Eleanor of Aquitaine. One of the most formidable women of Europe. That's right. She, In many ways, she should have been a hero in her own right, shouldn't she? Because she actually, is... Actually, I think later on we might do a whole episode on her. Because she is the only queen in history to have ever married both the King of France, Louis mm-hmm. VII, and the King of England... Henry II, right? She also fathered, she also mothered, sorry. How, yeah. how many other kings? Yeah, she was the mother of three more kings all across Europe. Yeah, so yeah, basically she was a massive player um, at this time. Yeah, um, and also to, uh, we say of Aquitaine. Mm. Now, I know this is a mappy question. <laughs> Whereabouts is what we... Yeah, yeah exactly. Where, where is Aquitaine? Yeah. Now, I'm glad you asked that, because right? it is a nice map question. Because you've got to remember, back in these days, yeah, you've had um, William the Conqueror. He's come over from Normandy, and he's right. taken over England. So England and Normandy, Brittany, they're all together. That's what we call France, the nation of France. For a lot of these stages, it's nothing more than they call it the Ile de France. Don't they? It's just around Paris. Yeah. It's a very small area, because you've got Burgundy above, and then below or the west coast, or down in Bordeaux, or down towards the Basque Country, or basically the western half of what's modern-day France was Aquitaine, which is very much, in many ways, a separate country. And a very powerful country. That's right. And, you know, for example, when the Second Crusade came, this Eleanor of Aquitaine, she was a leader on the Second Crusade. Yeah, that's how important she was, alongside the kings. In fact, uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine was the only female ruler who not only went on crusade, made it as far as Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. and there are reports that she took along 300 women with her, which were all dressed up like ancient Amazons. Ah, right. So, yeah, she wasn't frightened of the battle. Good. So, that's Eleanor, and it's also, you know, we, we did want to just touch quickly back on Richard, because... Uh, um, the, yeah. <laughs> to be honest, there is quite a few things that we have found out, isn't it? He does cry. He throws himself on the floor and cries at his dad. Oh, um, his father catches him in, in rebellion. In rebellion, yeah, yeah. Henry II. Um, we've also got the fact that, you know, his wife, Berengaria of Navarre, they never 
reportedly they never consummate the marriage uh, and she she thinks so much of him she's the only queen of england never to bother setting foot on english soil and um, and i must get uh, one more for the twitters um out there thank you for this because you picked me up blackadder of course brian blessed he was modeled on Richard Lionheart, but of course they had to call him Richard the Fourth, and because there's a there's a copyright on, on English kings. All right, so that's uh, the first part of the Force Crusades. But the other question that's been coming up on, on Facebook, Mikey, is, is people want to know how serious was the split in Christian Europe at this time? Yeah, this Catholics versus Orthodox Church was it real? Was it a real schism? Yeah, or were they just really all on the same side? No, and, and not just a, a, a religious schism, but a massive cultural schism as well. Right. You know, very different cultures, very different ways of organising things. Mm-hmm. And I found a really weird example that points out the difference. Go on. It's 972 mm-hmm. uh, in the Common Era. Yep. Emperor Otto II, the Holy Roman Empire, sure. the emperor, has married a, a Byzantine woman, Theophana Scudderus. Mm. Nice Greek name. But the thing is, she completely outrages the court when she arrives. We scandalises it, right? Because she uses a fork when she eats, <laughs> right? The the uh, the hermit monk and theologian Peter Damien, who was later canonised, mm. gives us a contemporary description of her outrageous behaviour. Mm. Such was the luxury of her habits that she deigned not to touch her food with her fingers but would command her eunuchs to cut it up into small pieces, right. which she would impale on a certain golden implement with two prongs and thus carry to her mouth. Now, the thing that amazes me, he's upset about the fork, but he seems okay <laughs> with the eunuchs. <laughs> yeah, because you've got to remember, folks, in, at this time, most people, they just ate either with a knife, you know, one big knife for hacking off, and then the rest with their fingers. But this lady, she's too fancy for that. She wants a go- golden fork. Golden fork, and also, too, when she later dies of the plague... Mm. He says that it was God striking her down. St. Damien, which is by this stage, St. Damien says it's God striking her down for daring to use the fork. And look, I know it's a small example, but yeah. it does show that... The, Shows the difference, doesn't the it? massive difference between the two cultures. All right. And then the final one. Big question here on Twitter. What happened to Bonyface? You remember yeah. the Bonyface? So he, uh, he becomes the emperor. He, he leads the crusade and he says, well, forget about Jerusalem. I'm going to stay here and become top dog in Byzantium, uh, and I think you'd be, you'd be very pleased to hear, yeah. Mikey, he didn't last very long, because you remember old mate, the old blind Dondolo, the Doge, yeah? The Doge, the Doge yeah. of Venice, yes. He, he doesn't think very much about Boniface, so within the year, he actually bumps off Boniface, they get another emperor, who's Baldwin, from Flanders. Yeah, oh, he's, right, one, yes. he's one of the other crusader leaders. The Doge reckons he'd be probably a better man for the job. So they kick out Boniface before he even you know, gets to settle in, and he gets kicked over to Thessalonica. And he, so they let him become king of Thessalonica. He's that sort of sub-king. Yeah. Um, and uh, in fact, funnily enough, in 1205... Boniface, and not long afterwards, you know, Boniface gets murdered. Um, he gets killed in an ambush by the Bulgarians. Um, uh, dare I say that... The, the, sorry, 1207. Dare I say that dealing with uh, the, the blind doge, Dendella, it's a bit like the mafia. No one retires gracefully. Yeah. Well, that's it. And not only was the doge against him, the Bulgarians, yeah. their head, their chief, who was their old Tsar 
Kalyan, um, and <laughs> look, if the Dandolo was a dodgepot, then the uh, Kalyan was even worse. He, this, this is the guy, Mike. You may have heard he's the famous skull drinker. He loved to cut off the heads of his uh, enemies, knock off the top, and then drink wine out of their skull. All right, and then the, yeah, as we said, yeah, the Crusaders. Yeah, look, a few of them did split off, and a few of them ha- did have enough. They were like, "What were we messing around in Constantinople this whole time?" Some of them did try to go to Jerusalem, but. As we said, you know, by then it was all too late. They had very, very little impact. And that's, of course, is why we get sixth, the, the seventh, fifth, sixth, seventh, seventh eighth crusade. And they just eventually fizzle out. That's right. I think it was the second episode where we talked about the American War of Independence. That's right. right. Well, well, you talked about gout, Mikey. Well, but- you know, I still stand by my theory that, the, yeah. that gout right. was a major player. But one of the things, and, and here I go again, I mentioned Franklin, right? And in the throwaway line, I mentioned... Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin right. Franklin, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. I was talking about the founding fathers. So ben, Benjamin Franklin, despite the fact he later got gout, yes. actually invented flippers. Invented flippers. And a lot of people have said, oh, come on. Yeah. Come on. But it's true. In fact, Franklin was a very enthusiastic swimmer. I'll get, I'll get at the flippers in a second. Because wasn't he... You were telling me, Mikey, he was in sporting halls of fame. He's at two of them. He's in the chess hall of fame, which right. you, you sort of guess that. Yeah, sure. And he's in the swimming hall of fame. Because uh, of the flippers? Well, not really. In fact, well, there are two main things. Well, he's, he's set up one of the first swimming schools in America. Oh, right, yeah. And also, too, as a young man in London, he, mm. was, he was taking a, a boat down the Thames. Because mm. you have to remember, the, the, the Thames was, was used as, as a thoroughfare in those days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, he got bored. Before the London Underground, they'd go on the, on the water. That's on the true, water, yeah. yeah. So uh, he got bored and he jumped off the boat and swam about 1.5 k's down the river. Right. Which made the papers. Because up until then, the British had not really thought that you could get in water. Right. And, well, uh, apart from the boat race, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you wouldn't get on it, but not in it. And, and so, in fact, he popularised not just recreational swimming, but swimming as a sport. In Britain, and that's worked out, Which, worked out well, so well yeah, for you well, guys. Took off massively with our great yeah. swimming yeah. Olympics tradition. Let's not mention that. But here, right. here comes the flippers. Yeah. He was 11 years old when he invented them. Right. In fact, it's his first invention in a life full of invention. Go on. And he actually recounts in a letter in 1773. Now, this is how he describes that. Mm. When I was a youth, I made two oval pallets, each about 10 inches long and six broad, mm. with a hole for the thumb in order to retain it fast into the palm of my hand. Oh, so these are hand flippers. Yeah. They, right, okay. They resembled, resembled a painter's pallet. Ah, yeah. So he said when he swam, yeah. he'd push the edges forward mm. and he'd strike the water with a flat mm. surface as I drew them back. And they did make him swim faster, but he does complain that they fatigued his wrists. Right. But he also fitted them to the soles of his feet ah. as a kind of sandals. So, so this is a bit like what done Bondi Beach, Maggie, when you got those body surfers that, yeah. with their uh, paddles. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. One, yeah. yeah, yeah. But he then attached them to the feet as well. Right. But he said he wasn't quite satisfied with. <laughs> he said, I observed that the stroke is partly given by the inside of the feet and the ankles, not entirely with the soles of the feet. Oh. Which so makes sense, but yes. A few design flaws. A few design flaws, but <laughs> having said that. Still, at the age of 11. At the age of 11, yeah. Benjamin Franklin invented flippers. And while, yeah. I'm, while I'm talking about Benjamin Franklin and inventions, look, we all know that, you know, the, the bifocals. Yes, yes, I've heard that one. Um, the Franklin stove, the lightning rod. and The, the lightning rod? Yeah, well, yeah, the, the old kite. Yeah, but had, yeah. but that's, that may be apocryphal, but he did actually invent the lightning rod that went on, went on top of tall right. houses. Yeah. And the glass harmonica. 
Harmonica. No, harmonica. Harmonica. Okay. What's an harmonica? You, 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 okay. you ever wet your finger in a glass of wine and run it around the rim and makes a, a, a musical note? Oh, with champagne glass sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, what he'd done was he actually got a whole bunch of glasses, about the same shape as, remember your parents, those flat bottom champagne glasses? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Touch them all. No, the ones that they, they use in, when they pour the, uh, yeah. the, the, make the fountains. Yeah, I know you on, yeah. He got a whole bunch of them in varying sizes together mm-hmm. and put them on a device where they dip in water. Mm-hmm. Then when you pressed a certain lever, yeah. a wet sort of spongy bit of felt would rub yeah. against. And so you could play a and tune. And make tunes. Could, and it was called the glass harmonica. All right, and then finishing off uh, on the American uh, Declaration of Independence, a few people have um, said, why? Yeah. Why is England's approach to uh, North America so different to France's? Why are the French so keen on the colon- uh, on the trade down the rivers, and why did the English try to colonise and set up these new states? Because, of course, yeah, Spain also colonised, um, but Spain did try and, well, Spain's crown completely dominated and, and had rigid control over all of the colonization um, that the Spanish took out. The British, I suppose, were just a bit more independent, weren't they? You know, yeah. is, um, and also, too, correct me if I'm wrong here, apart from the Puritans, the rest that go down like to Virginia, yeah. a lot of them are like the second-born or, or, or slightly less important nobles yes. who aren't going to get any property back home. Yeah. So they're already there for venture capital. That's right, yeah. They think this is their big chance to make it big. And they see... There's also that idea of, you know, the building... The New Jerusalem. I think that's yeah. uh, that. The idea is that they're going to build a, something new, a new world. Whereas, I suppose you know, Spain it was all about you know just finding the city of gold and uh, yeah. El Dorado and, and nicking it. <laughs> and you know, and if we could convert some people along the way, we'll give it a crack. Give it a crack. It's time for us to look back now on the event that both of us lived through, which was the fall of the Berlin Wall. That's right. One we actually <laughs> remember. Yeah. Yeah. We, we actually saw a bit. Of, we, yeah. we saw it on the telly. And you've got another unsung hero from the fall. Wow, that's Well, it. in fact, a probably overly sung hero. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, when you say sung, yeah, be careful there, Mikey, because as a few of you have asked, is it true, did Michael Hasselhoff really bring David that? Hasselhoff. Oh, David Hasselhoff. Sorry. Yeah, did they, David See, Hasselhoff. I reckon you made that mistake on purpose to show you're a bit cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah actually, I'm, I'm too cool to listen to his. Number one song, which was Looking for Freedom, because apparently for eight weeks mm-hmm. in the summer of uh, 1989, uh, eight long weeks, <laughs> Hasselhoff's song was number one on all the charts in Germany, East and West, and he claims, uh, apparently he had his New Year's Eve concert there oh. that year as well, amongst the rubble after the wall came down. He claims that his song and his campaign was as much responsible for bringing down the wall as uh, Ronald Reagan or my- <laughs> Mr. Gorbachev turned up that wall speech. Mr. Gorbachev. So, you know, um, uh, in fact, I've, I've been told there's a campaign, Mikey, yes. um, for the picture of uh, Hasselhoff to be included in Checkpoint Charlie Museum, which is like a sort of <laughs> the Berlin yeah, Wall yeah. <laughs> Hall of Fame. And I've also been told that the, the Scorpions, their song, you remember that song, oh, Winds of Change? Yeah, yeah. With all, everyone holding the lighters yes. up above them, yeah. They, yeah they're, they're saying that that should go in there as well. But um, <laughs> see, mind you, I, I can see it from the East German youth's perspective. They looked at a man with a mullet and stonewashed denim and went, he's one of us. He's one of us. Exactly. He's our leader. All right. Okay. The other question, Mikey, we huh. had on Twitter this time. Did anybody 
go the other way. We talked about people escaping yeah. from east to west over the wall. Did anybody go the other way? I, I'm, I'm imagining not many. Those who went the other way into the east, yeah. it's a very small number. So you've got someone like, um, like in 1949, you've got Bertolt Brecht who leaves, Sweden, leaves Switzerland to go and live in East Berlin. Right, yeah. But to, for people who actually defected, well, one of the most famous was in 1968, an actor called Wolfgang Kaisling. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he was quite well known in, in Western uh, Germany. Okay. He defected to the Eastern protests against the Vietnam War and immediately regretted it. Right. But the guy I've really got to, I want to talk to you about yeah. is Michael Perry. Okay. An American soldier. And I'm talking about February 1989. 89. It's the, so the same year the year war came down. Right? Only okay. months before, yeah. he decides to go the other way. He decides right. to affect him. Now, he's an American soldier. Yeah. See, right. okay, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get to this quickly. Perry is a kid. His father moved around a lot, so he's sort of over-identified with America as a homeland. And he had a bit of a James Bond fetish. Right. In fact, when he... Because they'd been living in South Africa for years. When he moved back to Los Angeles, he decided to adopt an American accent. <laughs> Unfortunately, as a child, the, I was a teenager, the accent he adopted was Texan, and he got picked... Didn't go down in Beverly no, Hills, no. He, 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 actually got, he actually got picked on at school. <laughs> but... The, thing is too he then he, he jumps the wall yeah and they ask his soldiers why because you know he, he thinks he's james bond except here's the thing when james bond you know, disappears <laughs> yeah he doesn't leave behind his own skis he's three in one stereo and, right. a, sec- and a second in honda civic and also too when bond jumps the wall yeah he doesn't drive a humvee to the border leave it there so they know exactly where, where he went over what and he's got he just drove up in the humvee uh, and jumped over the wall and he was gone for 11 days Right. And after eleven days, he actually turned up at the um, the he guard came calling back. Uh, yeah, the no. guy said, can, and the, "Can you let me back in, please?" It's, it's a bit sad because they because um, they knew he was gone for the moment. He's gone actually, and he did have access to some pretty interesting material. Right, he he, I mean, he was on, on, you know, in a border you know in a border re- regiment. Yeah, apparently. Um, some of his fellow soldiers said Michael's a bit of a loner. Okay. And in the few weeks leading up to his uh, defection, he'd been seen in the company of a woman who was way out of his league. Oh, bit of a honey trap. The old honey trap. Oh, and, dear. And the, other, and the worst thing, too, is when he finally... He, yeah, he, uh, he, he realised was, she wasn't really going to be there for him. No. And no. he comes calling her. Come, yeah, but he, yeah, he then gets sentenced <laughs> to 30 years. No way. No, because he actually he had some floppy disk on him that he didn't bring back with him. Right. Which were... 30 years yeah. sentence. Court-martial. Uh, and wow. this, is, this is the saddest thing. Go on. After he gets sentenced, his mother is giving a press conference speaking in his defence. Yeah. If anything... Mike's on the klutzy side. If I were on a mission and Mike were on a mission, I'd worry about him screwing up. Not about being loyal, just about making a mistake. Oh, dear. So you've got to admit, you know, the last person to defect to the East was this poor bloke oh. who does it months before the wall comes down and ends up in jail for 30 years. Oh, dear. All right. Okay. And we've got some great little uh, tidbits um, from folks back home about, about the wall, actually, Mikey. Yeah. Because uh, we, we mentioned about all the silly places it's ended up, like the, the urinal in, uh, <laughs> in the casino in, in the Las ca- Vegas. In the casino of Vegas. But I've, got a list, I've got a list of more here. Yeah. We've got a train station in Monaco. Right. They've got a bit. Um, the... DMZ checkpoint, the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. Apparently, there's a bit there on the north side. Remind me not to visit that. <laughs> maybe try to keep their wall going. Usain Bolt, apparently, he's got a bit. He's got a bit in Jamaica. He was presented with that, as was Nelson Mandela, who took a piece back to South Africa. And then, of course, there's that bit that they put on the table, didn't they, at Reykjavik in the summit in, in between Reagan 
and Gorbachev uh, in, well, what would that be, 86? And I, mean, I don't know what you're saying for a second, but there are other reports too. That people say that if you if you take all the bits of the Berlin Wall that have been sold on eBay and put it back together, it's yeah. about four times longer than the original wall. That's true, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe Usain Bolt, but you probably got written in, in yeah. Taiwanese on the back. Yeah, <laughs> made, yeah, yeah. made it made oh, in China. Knows, knows, knows. All right, okay. Now, while we're in Germany, uh, we're episode four, I suppose. Um, World War One, aren't we? Causes of the World War One, yes. uh, assassination of Archduke. Uh, Franz Ferdinand, and we were talking about the cause of World War One. Obviously, <laughs> as we said in the episode, it wasn't just the, the, the shot that was heard around the world because there were so many other factors that have just been culminating and culminating and, and building up to it anyway. But I think, yeah, you wanted to talk about one nice one that you've used to know in your history days from uh, from AJP Taylor, wasn't it? Train timetables. That's right. Yeah, yeah. and you know, AJP Taylor, you know, the famous historian, once said that you know, train trains played an incredibly important part in the First World War. But you have to remember that you know, the, the, the first war where trains were used extensively yeah. was the American Civil War. Yeah, of course, so they and, used that. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of the battles that have gone down you know, in, in famous names mm. are associated with, with, with railway junctions. But World War One was when yeah. really it became a critical and in, piece of machinery, didn't it? In fact, I only came across this recently. There were high-ranking generals on mm. both the British and the German side mm who were aware a war was coming. Mm. So they just happened to take their holidays on the continent mm. and where they studied train timetables. Yeah, I've heard about some sort of feasibility, an early feasibility yeah, study, yeah, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. 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 How long would it take? Would that yeah. train actually arrive on time? So, yeah, yeah, so, so, I've heard about that. So you had British German generals going all over Europe checking out the trains. Well, and I think, it, but they had to, didn't they, Mackie? Because <laughs> I think the key was, yeah, in the build-up to... World War One. We're talking about, in terms of armies, we're talking about conscript armies. These are right. not standing armies. So yeah. if you're going to have a real war, proper war, you need to do mass call-ups and you need to do mass mobilisation. And they realised that to get all the people they needed mobilised in yeah. time, um, you need a train. You know, no one really used automobiles at that stage for for mass transport. No. So it's all by train. So you've got, to, you've got to get the guys to sign up and you've got to load them on a train and send them to where they need to go. But when they started looking at the train timetables, mm. they realised that if they tried to do that, they were going to, you know, shoot themselves in the foot. For example, you know, the Austrians they looked at it and they realised that hang on, if we send all our forces on the trains down against Serbia, yeah, we can't send anybody on trains up against Russia at the same time because the, all those trains would run against each other. And then the Russians just realised that if they were going to send their trains down to back up Serbia, they couldn't mobilise at the same time and have trains going to Germany? Because obviously, A, there's not enough trains. Yes. But B, you know, train tracks, you, you, you can't have one train going one way, one way, the other. Yeah, I would assume so. Can I just point out that we're now dealing with maps and train spotting. You must be in heaven, mate. <laughs> so, but it's, 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 it's serious because, yeah, my initial reaction was, well, hang on, they can just commandeer all the private trains and just uh. do what they like with them, which would be the answer, except, of course, you, if you put all the trains and they all go to Serbia then suddenly you've got a lot of empty trains and you've got no trains either. So Germany in particular, um, they realise, hang on, if we mobilise all our troops and send them to the Eastern Front, we're going to have no troops and no trains to get to the Western Front. Um, so basically the idea of being able to partly mobilise, you know, a sort of show of strength, if you like, which is what, yeah. what the generals preferred option. Yeah. yeah, Their hope was, look, if we just do a bit of show of, fence, uh, show of strength, say we're going to mobilise, that'll scare them off, that'll stop the war. But Germany realised, no, we can't do that. If we partly mobilise on one and we're taken seriously and they respond, yeah. we'll never have time to get back 
to the other side. So if we're going to do it, we've got to go all in and it's wartime on all fronts. And, uh, and, and the rest is history. Uh, indeed. Well, actually, not quite. While we're talking <laughs> trains, we also remember too, probably the most important train trip of the 20th century was the train to Moscow that snuck Lenin in ah, yeah. to meet the Bolsheviks just before yep. the re- revolution in 1917. Yep. And of course, there is another uh, dreadful uh, uh, train outcome from the Russian Revolution, something I studied at university, Agitprop Theatre. Which, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, you have to remember, you know, the vast majority of Russia is illiterate. Mm. So as the Bolsheviks spread their, um, their message, it was through agitation and propaganda theatre. So right. The, so the train... Oh, on the backs of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah okay, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The, they, they'd have wagons and that would become the stage, yeah. Yeah, so you know, when the train came to town, it wasn't a circus, it was a bunch of actors <laughs> doing a really dull play. <laughs> this brings us to our last uh, episode we're going to talk about in today's episode of Extra Helpings. There's going to be another one. And I can see you chafing at the bit, mate, because it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's your favourite topic. It's Columbus, yeah. for the Spoochy, maps. And the maps, maps Ahoy, yeah, mm. and exactly questions about just, yeah, that naming of America and the Americas. And so we've got a few questions about yeah, this. Yeah, well, and, and quite rightly so, because as, um, yeah, we say it's America, but don't forget at the time, for example, um, in 1776, Declaration of Independence, yeah, when they created Washington, it was the District oh, of Columbia, Columbia yeah. not the District of America, yeah? So they wanted to honour George Washington, obviously, but they also wanted to honour at the same time Christopher Columbus because he was seen um, as, as as the most important. So, yeah, don't think that Columbus gets completely written out. And, of course, the British then, they had their British Columbia yes. um, um, in Canada, not British America. So, you know, yeah, I, I think, yeah, we, we can't completely dis Columbus and we can't say he's not important, but... Well, actually, which reminds me too, uh, the the first big American international event mm. was in the late part of the 19th century, about 1893-94 in mm. Chicago. It's now known as the Chicago's World Fair, yeah. but it was called the Columbian Exposition right. in celebration of Columbus. So well, yeah, you're right, you yeah, yeah. But, uh, and obviously the other guy we talked about was Vespucci, wasn't he? And yeah. People asked him if we could tell him a bit more about him. So he was Italian as well, like Christopher Columbus, yes. um, so that's important. Uh, he was a merchant, like uh, Columbus too, mm. and he, he was actually based in Seville at this stage. He was part of the Medici trade empire. Yeah, so, oh, so he's got yeah. Medici backing. Yeah, exactly, and he's part of their gang. And their gang, of course, um, were also involved in the Columbus expeditions, and yeah, you know, and and so Vespucci's direct boss, who was Giannotto uh, Berardi, he was a backer of Columbus. So it's very important to point out that Vespucci only got the inside track because he was following and so close to the Columbus expeditions. But quick reminder: unlike uh, Columbus, though, he recognised that he discovered it, uh, uh, well, uh, and he pre- set out to. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a, it. A previously unknown to the West um, that's continent. It. He was deliberately looking for. A new world. Um, he wasn't looking for India, a, a, room, a, a route to the Indies. That's right. Yeah, but and so his first expedition. It's quite interesting. His first expedition was for Spain, right. and the same way that Columbus was. But then he jumped ship. If you yeah, <laughs> excuse yeah. the pun, you, you've um, been working on that, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, all week. Um, so he goes over to the Portuguese side, and he starts ah. sailing under the Portuguese flag. Which is why, because he lands in uh, Brazil. It's, Modern day Guyana, but at the time it was all part of Brazil. That's why Brazil, in you know, things like the Treaty of Tordesillas and the Treaty of Zaragoza, that's why the Brazilian side of the continent goes to Portugal. You know, we've got all those papal bulls, and then the, the other side goes 
to the Spanish. Oh, so Vespucci's Voyages of Discovery are the reason why parts of the continent speak Portuguese yeah. and parts of the continent speak Spanish. The other way around, exactly, yeah. So Vespucci, of course, himself, yeah, he never called it America. Yeah, no. he, he didn't even know that anyone else was calling it America because he dies in 1512, which is before, really, the Valsimula map, um, which uses America for the first time, before that becomes common currency. And I think it's worth pointing out that the real thing that sealed that deal yeah. was probably the Mercator map. Um, yeah, just get one more map in. Yeah, um, the Mercator map, the Orbis Imago uh, of 1537, which th- again uses America um, as the name for the continent, not Colombia. And that Orbis Imago becomes the best-selling map across Europe, and that cements uh, Vespucci's position. Uh, and it's backed up by his own Vespucci's last uh, letter uh, to his patron where he talks about the modus novum, the, the new world, which is a phrase that Columbus doesn't use. And I think that's why Vespucci gets all the credit. Because Vespucci's first name was, we should write it. Amerigo Vespucci. Amerigo Vespucci. So they were going to call it Amerigan, but then they went, okay, no, the yeah. uh, continent's got to be female America. Look, and I've got to admit, there are scholars out there who say that uh, Vespucci's first trip may not even have got to the Americas uh, at all. But certainly the second and third voyages we know is true. We definitely landed um, on the South American continent, so that's that's good enough for me. Anyway. But, um, but either way, you've got to admit, both those voyages, particularly out of you know, Spain you know, and later from Portugal and, and also to various other English explorers, mm. in terms of the West, mm. it's pretty much the start of globalisation. Mm. And you've got something to actually make on this, haven't you? And it goes a long way to summing up just how, yeah. in many ways, you know, both Columbus and Vespucci you know, heralded not just the age of exploration, but as you say, the beginning of the whole global global yeah. village. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And once again, this is from a Western perspective. Yeah, and you've got something special. I can well, something it, out again. It's, I've got a feeling it's foodie. Go on. It is foodie. This is a this is a Spanish hot chocolate recipe Ooh. from 1631. Oh, you, have oh, to nice. remember, you have to remember too. It was only in recent. You know, only sort of. Pretty much in the nineteenth century, that we got chocolate bars. It was right. a drink. It was a yeah, drink. chocolate was a drink, the same way as coffee was when it's first brought over from the yeah. Americas. They used a, the chocolate drink, but it right. wasn't wasn't hot chocolate like your, like your mum used to make you. <laughs> Not this Horlicks. Is, yeah, go on. Th- this this is a, a, a example for a rather large blend. Mm. For every hundred cocoa beans, mm. America, from mix, America, yeah, mix two pods of chili or Mexican pepper. From Mexico, yeah. Or failing these, two Indian peppercorns. Oh right, okay. A handful of aniseed. Yep. Two of the flowers known as little ears and two of those known as miascuchuli. Oh, Mediterranean. Mediterranean well, yep. Instead of the latter, you could use the powder of six roses of Alexandria. Yeah, Egypt, yep. Yep. A little pot of logwood. I think it's a dye from the Middle East. Right. Two drachmas of cinnamon. Well, that's the that's the far the, the far Indies. Uh, yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. You got the Malaccas and yeah, all the uh, Guam. A dozen a dozen almonds and as many hazelnuts. So that's European. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Northern European. A bit Northern European. Yep. Yeah. Half a pound of sugar, which is sugar cane, which is sugar ca- cane, where ca- they found the Americas again. Yep. And enough anato, which is a dye from Mexico, mm. to give colour to the whole. So mm. that is a 1631 recipe for hot chocolate that basically said if you if you're drinking a cup of that. You had a cup of the world's a cup of the tra- world. The world's trade. The world in a cup, yeah. The world's trade in your hand. Lint, lint chili chocolate, eat your heart out. Exactly. <laughs> they came 500 years late to the party.
Okay, folks, so that's the end of our first dollop of extra helping. So I hope you enjoyed yeah. it. Um, sounds like you all pretty much know the deal by now. So yeah, if you can, try and keep in touch with us on social media, yeah. your Twitter, your Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. Always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist, yeah, we, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on, on whichever platform you happen to use. And it's always good to get some feedback. That's great. And uh, hopefully you'll tell us a few more heroes and howlers you'd like to have covered in future episodes and maybe a few more tidbits about the ones we've already covered in season one which brings us to next week next week so more extra helpings second half episodes six to ten don't forget send us in your suggestions as well for season two already working on the uh, 1905 russia uh, japanese naval war excellent good man yeah so we've got some good episodes coming up there we'll bid farewell to season one next week, unfortunately. Um, but, but, but next week, extra helpings and... And I've got a feeling you've got another special historical treat just to draw the curtain. I've got two words for you, Paul. Go on. Pork crackling. <laughs>